coming from like a, a lower working class family, we didn't have a lot of money, a lot of resources. So we were always thinking, what's the kind of job that I could do that would set me up to like live a more comfortable, stable life than what my family had. And so immediately we went to like the medical field, right? It's like, Ooh, it could be a doctor, except I knew really quickly. I'm like, I can't do blood so then we're thinking like, what other things could you do that are like medicine adjacent? And as we're going to the pharmacy, my mom was like, what about being a pharmacist? I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to Curiosity, the communication and media podcast. My name is Jacob Sparrow. I'm here with two very awesome people. I'm your co-host, Catherine Petzl. And we, today we are interviewing one of my favorite professors, um, Dr. Justin Rudnick. Um, would you mind um, telling us a little bit about yourself and possibly also what you would prefer to be called during this interview? Oh, sure. Uh, Justin's fine. I am, I guess, formally Dr. Justin Rudnick. Um, I've been teaching in the communication studies department since fall of 2016. So I think this is my seventh year here, if my math adds up right. Um, and I mostly had been teaching at our metro location. We had a partnership with Normandale Community College up in Bloomington. So I'm not down on the main campus very often, but this is the first semester I've been doing it in, I think, a couple of years. And that's how I got Jacob in class. Oh, cool. All right. All right. Um, we are going to start off with a couple rapid fire questions, if that's okay. Oh, okay. Um, all right, let's start. Favorite TV show? Oh, no. Um, oh, Bob's Burgers. Nice. One of my favorites. A favorite book? Oh, I couldn't pick one. Um, uh, but fantasy as a genre, I'll say that. All right. Favorite class you've ever taught? Oh, it's always performance studies. I love that class. I got to say that's an awesome answer. <laughs> Favorite place on campus? It's not Armstrong Hall. <laughs> Everyone keeps saying that. I swear it's the ugliest building <laughs> on campus. Um, I We've got a great student union. So there are lots of really cool pockets around the CSU that I like. There's that fireside lounge might be my favorite. Oh, yeah, the Heritage Lounge. Mm -hmm, that's it. I love that place. Least favorite place. Armstrong Hall. <laughs> that was my answer too. <laughs> pet what are your pet peeves? Ooh, in what context? I guess whatever your choice, but yeah, just a pet peeve. Whichever one of you're choosing. Okay, well, here's a funny one then. Um, I hate when people get out of the shower wet and get the, the bath mat wet. I don't like stepping on a wet bath mat. <laughs> Even though I know that's the purpose uh -huh. of the bath mat, I'm like dry off in the shower and then come out dry. I, I don't like stepping on wetness. Wait, do you do like the body squeegee thing? No. Like with your hands, you just like kind of like. Um, when I wash my hands, I do Okay. like in the sink. I'm just like squeegee squeegee before you dry <laughs> off with something else. But no. And when I finish a shower, I'll like grab my towel and dry off in the tub mm -hmm. before I step out. Cause I just don't like wetness on the floor. All right. Fair. Interesting. Do you have a favorite video game? Ooh, Final Fantasy 13. Least favorite video game? Final Fantasy 12. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are three bands or musicians that would be always be on your playlist? Lady Gaga. Um, Kesha's usually in the rotation. 
Ooh, and Sarah Bareilles. Not familiar. <gasps> really? Maybe I've heard them or heard her on the radio. Oh, I'm sure if I gave you a song, you would know it. She also wrote the music for the Waitress musical. If you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. she played the lead on Broadway for a little while. Oh, it's fine. You're missing out. You look her <laughs> okay, <up. laughs> all right. Um, what's your What's your favorite theater performance? I would say Waitress, because um, I've seen it twice and I've loved it both times. The musical Six is also fantastic, like the feminist retelling of the Wives of Henry VIII. Um, but I also saw in the last year um, Come From Away, which blew my mind. So I would I'd give you those three. It's like I couldn't choose from one of them. All right. What is one word that you think would describe you best? Supporter. All right. Awesome. Well, so now we're going to go into, we're going to transition to the part of the podcast. That's more of the slower, like in-depth kind of questions sure. from you. And so the first one that we have is why did you become a teacher and what does that mean to you? Ooh, I figured you were going to ask that. And so <laughs> I was thinking it on the, on my drive down this morning. I don't know if teaching was ever, it was a thing that I think I learned to love, but I don't know if it was ever something that I had initially set out to do, if that makes sense. Um, I had a very interesting college trajectory in that when I started as an undergraduate, I was a pre-pharmacy major. So doing lots of chemistry and biology stuff. And it took me until my junior year to realize that I hated that work and hated my classes and was not interested enough in the material to work as hard as I needed to work to be better at it. So I had kind of a, a crisis the middle of my junior year of college. And I remember I was on the speech and debate team at the time. And I went into my speech coach's office, who is also like kind of, and still is like one of my life mentors. And I was like, Karen, I don't know what to do because I don't, I don't want to do what I've been doing. I don't like my classes, but the only thing that I know is speech. And I don't know what to do with that. And she was like, well, Justin, why don't you be a speech teacher and a speech coach? And I was like, oh my God, you can do that. And it was one of those moments where like, she rolled her eyes and laughed at me. She's like, well, what do you think I do? (laughs) (laughs) So that really got me thinking. And I was like, I loved forensics so much. And I still do. I love the activity. And so I was like, I want to do that. And it just so happens that in order to be a speech coach, you also have to be a speech teacher. So that's how I became a communication major and went all through grad school and just got really lucky in that the farther I went through school, the more that I realized I liked being in front of the classroom. I loved teaching. I liked working with students. So it was a thing I kind of picked up on the way to a different end goal that I thought I was working towards. That's a really cool journey. And very much so. First up, why pharmacy in the first place? Yeah, I remember. um, So I'm a first generation college student. I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. I'm uh, my youngest brother went to community college for half a semester and then stopped. So I'm still the only person in my family to like complete a degree. And I just got a few of them along the way. And I remember it was interesting because in spite of all of that, it was always just assumed with my parents that I was going to go to college. I was really smart in high school. I was very academic and they never questioned it. They're just like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember um, my mom dealt with chronic illnesses for my entire life. And I remember one time we were going to the pharmacy and um, 
she was asking me, it's like, well, what do you want to do after high school? Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I don't know. And we're brainstorming all these careers and everything. And coming from like a, a lower working class family, we didn't have a lot of money, a lot of resources. So we were always thinking, what's the kind of job that I could do that would set me up to like live a more comfortable, stable life than what my family had. And so immediately we went to like the medical field, right? It's like, oh, I could be a doctor, except I knew really quickly, I'm like, I can't do blood. I can't do bodily fluids. I don't want to cut anybody open. I don't want to like touch people. I couldn't do that. So then we're thinking like, what other things could you do that are like medicine adjacent? And as we're going to the pharmacy, my mom was like, what about being a pharmacist? I'm like, that's a great idea. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, Jacob. All right. And I absolutely love that. A good pharmacist, I mean, obviously you didn't go down that route, but a good pharmacist is life-saving. Yes, yes. And a lot of times what I learned, because I worked in pharmacy for nine years, um, they a lot of times know more about your medications than the doctors who prescribe them. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of, like, that was the piece of that work that I always thought was really interesting, like getting to look at a person's, especially with folks who are on a lot of different medications, being able to know, like, how are they going to affect you how might they interact with each other and trying to catch some of those things that the doctors might not recognize because they kind of like, I think a lot of times doctors are trained just to treat like an isolated symptom. So if you have this problem, we give you this pill. And it was the pharmacists that are going to kind of look at all of that more holistically and be like, how are these things going to work together to make you better? And so I, I, I liked that until I didn't. Mm-hmm. Wait, you said nine years you were. I was a pharmacy technician. For nine years. Yep. I started in high school because I was like, this will be a good chance to get some experience. And then I just kept working that throughout college, even after I changed my major. Because it was like back at the time when I was doing it, it's like early 2000s. It was a good job to have for somebody with who's still working through your education. Like back then I was making $12 an hour and that was like 15 years ago. So it was pretty sweet at the time. All right. All right. Um, next question. Looking at you, work, you do a lot with LGBTQ plus studies. Why did you choose to center your research around that? Yeah, I love that question. Um, so I've taught our senior, I'm going to tell a story on the way there. I teach, I've taught our senior capstone class for about five years now. And um, every time like students do like an independent research project in that class. And we talk about a lot of times, like, what is the inspiration for your research project? And it's usually an experience or a question or sometimes like a problem or a frustration that you've experienced personally. And that's what inspires somebody to do the work that they do. And that is absolutely true for me. I came out as gay in my first senior year of college. I was on the five-year track. Um, And so I finished my senior year and I came out and I had so many questions about like, what does it mean to be a gay person at the time I was wrestling also with my Christianity and like, how do I reconcile these two things when I was taught for most of my life that they don't fit together. At that point in time, I also knew that I was like eventually bound for grad school. I wanted to be a professor, but I didn't know what it would mean to be a gay professor. And so when I came out, this is the nerd of me that's like, I should have known I was going to be really good at this is I immediately went to the research and I started looking up like research articles as an undergrad student what do we know about being an LGBTQ person? And what do we know about being that kind of person in the classroom? And what was um, troubling is that the research was not 
optimistic about what that experience is like. And, you know, like a lot of things have changed and a lot of things have not changed. But back in 2009, it was a very different time. Like same sex marriage was not legal. It was um, a lot more easy for people to be discriminated against in all kinds of different segments of society. And so when I was looking at this classroom research, the results showed basically like if you're going to be an out LGBTQ person in the classroom, it is going to be difficult for you because students are not going to respond positively to that. And knowing that I was like, okay, but why? And are there things that we could do to counteract that or contradict that? And so that really kind of started my research interest on like, what does it mean to be an LGBTQ person? How do we communicate that sense of our identities to different people in different contexts under different circumstances? And that kind of just inspired almost everything that I've done since then. Oh my God. I love that. That's such a great way to contribute. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It starts with like that personal experience, but a question like, what can I do about this? Why does it work this way? And then you just keep every new project inspires new questions. And the next thing you know, it's been 15 years. Yeah. What have you seen from like from your students and stuff from like your work and like, Mm -hmm. or I guess what from the, from the pieces that you've put together and stuff, like what have you seen come from that? Ooh, so many things. And what I think has been really interesting is um, I think education in general, you might not think this, but it's a very conservative institution. And what I mean by that is like systems of education are very slow to change. So I have not seen like structurally, institutionally, a lot of change since I started doing this kind of research. Where I have seen the most change is in the students. Students' perspectives, students' experiences. I mean, folk, like the younger people get, the less they care about these kinds of things. It's like, it's not a big deal anymore. We don't care who you are as long as you're a good teacher. And I love that because when I started doing this kind of research, that was not the case. I remember, um, I was actually here at Mankato for my master's program and I was teaching an intro public speaking class and I never told my students that I was gay, but I'm also kind of one of those people where like, you just know (laughs) by looking at me. Um, I did an interview with somebody for a research project many years ago and they referred to themselves as a hundred footer. They're like, you can tell I'm gay from a hundred feet away. And I loved that (laughs) example. Um, And I've kind of just like used that myself. And I consider myself the same way. So I never told my students that, but I think in just the way that I show up in the classroom, people kind of guess. Um, And I remember telling this story. If you've taken public speaking, you might relate to this. Um, When we're talking about gestures and like, what does a person do with their hands when they're giving a speech? A lot of times, especially students when they're new to public speaking, they focus so much on what they're saying and not at all about what they're doing with their body. And so I was sharing the story with my students about how like I have very large hands and long fingers. And so if I'm not mindful of how I'm gesturing, it's very aggressive. Like it's, it'll feel like I'm coming at you with like laser fingers or something. And I told them my class, this story about how my mom used to say that um, I'd be a good proctologist because I have long skinny fingers. And it's like, well, if you've got to stick fingers up butts at the doctor's <laughs> office, these are good fingers to use for that. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was supposed to be funny. It was just this lighthearted example of like, we've got to think about what we're doing with our body when we're giving a speech. But because of that story and because of me and how I show up in the classroom, I had students say to other students, I mean, Justin's fine, but we're paying him to teach us not to be all gay on us. 
And I was like, but I didn't even, that had nothing to do with anything, right? But they read me in that way and then they interpret that story and they're like, ooh, that's gay. Um, so early on, it was really difficult because I'd hear those kinds of things. I'd get those kinds of comments on like my teaching evaluations. And I'm like, what do I do with this? But students have changed so much. And like now that I've been here as like a professor for seven years, a lot of times I just show up in the classroom the way that I am. And I'm like, this is what you're getting. This is what you signed up for. If you're taking a class with me and what I've seen more often than not is that students respect that kind of like authenticity in the classroom. Like when you're just who you are and you're not apologetic for it, I think a lot of people just feel comfortable with that. Um, well, I guess for for like prejudice, you kind of experienced through stu or sorry, student evaluations. I mean, did you experience that with other professors? Um, usually not, no. And in fact, most of the time I think my Every professor that I've had, and I've had a lot of them over the 11 years that I was in school, were super supportive and very um, welcoming of like who I was and how I showed up. I did have one very interesting experience, and I actually wrote about this in one of my research articles. Um, I was in a class, this was during my PhD program, and we were talking about, um, it was at like an advanced communication theory class. And we were talking specifically about this idea of a double consciousness that um, anybody who is marginalized or comes from kind of like a, a minority perspective is going to understand how the world works from two different vantage points. They're going to see it the way that it works for people in power. And they're also going to understand the way that it works for people like them. Cause, and those things are oftentimes very different. And we had this student in the class with us who was just struggling to understand this. And the professor looks at me and I had like my nails painted this particular day. She looks at my nails and she looks at me and she goes, well, Justin, clearly you understand it. I mean, cause you're out. And I was like, Oh, we have not talked about this in class. I've never shared that with you. You're not wrong. Right. It's like you, you've read me correctly, but um, that was one moment where I'm like, all of a sudden, I feel like my sexuality has been, it's been used as an example in class. And I, I didn't really give anybody permission to do that. And that was like one of very few situations where I'm like, I feel a little icky about this right now. But other than that, everybody's been fantastic. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And so are you referring to your research project, Painted Nails? Um, is that, or is that the... They're all kind of very related because I wrote that piece at the exact same time. Okay. Um, the, so that painted nails essay is one of my favorites actually. And it's really just this, um, I, we call it autoethnography, but it's, that's a fancy word for using like personal stories as the data in our research. And so in that paper, I don't know if you had a chance to read through it, but I tell a series of different stories that start with like, I paint my nails one night and then the rest of the essay kind of goes through a day in my life navigating how people interact with me differently because of that. Um, so I wrote that paper at the same time, but the story I shared with you folks actually shows up in a different essay where I talk about how um, there are these moments when we put our identity on display for other people that kinds of opens up, it opens up opportunities for us to have certain kinds of conversations with them, more vulnerable more, um, I call it dialogic. And we, sometimes we get that right. We have those conversations and they go really well. And we develop this beautiful sense of like a mutual understanding 
with another person. And then sometimes we stumble up to those conversations and they go really poorly. <laughs> and we're like, oh, that was a botched opportunity for us to understand each other. And it just did not go well. And so I use a couple different personal stories to show how, you know, we might open the door to those conversations, but that doesn't mean they always happen the way we want them to. You know, I am not familiar with this, but Jacob was telling me about a project you're working on called the Rainbow Installation. What's that? Yes. Ooh, I love this. It's one of my favorite projects to do in class. It's rooted in, um, so there was this Brazilian performance artist. His name was Augusto Boal, and he kind of pioneered this approach to performance that's called theater of the oppressed. And the general idea of this is that he would go into these communities that were facing some kind of oppression or discrimination, and he would use theater techniques to kind of help them think through, like, who is your oppressor? What are the barriers to you achieving the kind of life that you want to live? And how do we, using theater, kind of work through those barriers to get us closer to the life that we want to be experiencing? And he came up with all kinds of different activities or some fantastic books out there about it. But one of my favorites is something that he calls image theater. And it's the idea that like you will, you can take your body and stage it in some kind of a location and capture a picture. So you, you produce an image with yourself in it that's designed to illustrate an oppression or a hardship that you experience. And then the next piece of that is to use those same strategies, use your body, place it in a particular context, stage yourself to illustrate what the world would look like if that oppression or if that hardship wasn't there anymore. And so you end up producing the series of images that kind of depict two things, the, the real, this is what I'm experiencing right now, and the ideal, this is what I wish things looked like, or this is what I want to work towards. And then when you put those images together, the juxtaposition ends up being this really powerful moment of showing people, this is what I labor through. And this is the freedom that I would feel if it wasn't there. And so I use that performance. We just finished them a few weeks ago in the performance studies class um, to help students kind of get introduced to some of those ideas. So like reflect on yourself. What is it that's getting in the way of you living the life you want to live and then what would it look like if those hardships weren't there? And it's create, it create, and it does this every time I teach this class and we do this performance creates this beautiful sense of like vulnerability and community amongst the class where we get done with those. And we just like, we've got a lot of this collective sigh and it's like, that was so much to deal with, but we also feel closer to each other and more connected because we've shared some of those experiences. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. There were a couple of them that I almost cried at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same. It happens every time. As a member of the LGBTQ plus community, would you say that, it, and I know you touched upon this a little bit, but would you say that MSU is inclusive and is there any ways that we could improve? Ooh, the pregnant pause. Um that's okay. We'll edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> Make it sound like I knew exactly what I was going to say right away. Um, I think in general, yes. I think Minnesota State Mankato is overall, I think, a very welcoming and inclusive place for a lot of people. I think it matters in a good way that we have the LGBT center that we have. I think we have one of the oldest LGBT centers in the country. If you look at colleges and universities that offer that kind of a support system. Oh, wow. 
okay. Yeah, which is fantastic. So I like I look all over campus. The fact that we're getting more and more gender neutral restrooms. The fact that those um, the when we passed the um, preferred name policy. So if you go by a different name, if you're in the process of transitioning and want to try something out, there's a way for you to put that name on your professor's radars without having to go through any kind of like formal legal name change procedure. Like there are a lot of these kinds of things that I think have been really good steps to support LGBTQ students on campus. I think sometimes those resources for faculty are a little bit harder to dig up. And part of that is, I think it's just a logistics issue. Like Everybody on campus is here to support the students, but whose job is it to support the faculty? And I don't know if we always know that because we would think administration, right? But there's always this weird kind of distrust, I think, between like faculty and administrators. And then it's like, do faculty just come together to support themselves? And there are certainly lots of groups like that on campus. But as you folks probably know, everybody's busy. And so like, faculty especially seems like it's a never ending cascade of stuff until the end of the semester. So a lot of times when I'm faced with like, do I go to this support meeting with other LGBTQ faculty? It's like, you know what? I would love to, but I'm just so tired that the most important thing is for me to just like sit down and read a book. (laughs) So do I think it's inclusive? Yes. And I think the university tries to be. I don't know if we are always as inclusive as I would like us to be, but I also don't know what those solutions are. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. That perspective of, yeah, the the administration Mm -hmm. and yeah, I, it sounds very complicated and also like always time, time, money, and just like this combination of everything. Because everything requires resources, right? And not just money, but oftentimes money. And It's like these days, I think everybody's resources are just drained so much more. Like there's not as much money in the system. Nobody has as much time as they want. Everybody's energy is dwindling. I don't think it ever came back from COVID. So it's just, it's a tough time, I think, to be in this industry, not just for us, but for students too. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to you being a professor here at MSU, it sounds like you are already achieving a lot with your students. Is there anything else you feel like you'd be doing more to achieve not only what you want for your students, but also for your own like personal career? Oh, there are a lot of things. I think the the more I think about it, the longer the list gets. I think, um, so I'm gonna answer that specifically coming from the communication department, because I think an, an issue, not an issue, I think a concern that we face, not just in our department, but in communication departments across the country is how do we best prepare students to enter the workforce when we know that our degree is so broad, right? And what I mean by that is like when you study communication and Jacob knows after taking a few classes is like communication is so much. And so we, I think in our classes, we do such a great job of helping students explore the role of communication in all these different aspects of society, how we get better at communication in all of these different contexts. And so we've, we create, not create, we cultivate students to just be really good people managers. What I don't think I always know is how to help students translate that, that experience, those skills, those insights when they're trying to enter the job market. And so I think, a lot of times our students bump up against this hardship where they're like, 
how do I make my degree make sense to somebody? Right. And I, that's, I think an issue that not a lot of other majors have, especially if we look at things like, you know, if you major in engineering, you're going to go be an engineer. If you major in accounting, you're going to go be an accountant. If you major in business, you're going to do something in business. I guess I don't even know what they do. Um, but if you major in communication, it's like you can do so many things. So it's uh, one of the things that I keep racking my brain over is trying to figure out how do we help students identify what they want to do? Like, how do you want to, what kind of work maybe and I guess it, like, I've started to get a little sassy about this and somebody's like, what's your dream job? And I'm like, I don't dream of working, <laughs> you know? And so I'm kind of like, what, what kinds of work do students want to do? Not because it's their dream job, but what is something that you're not going to hate that's going to help you pay the bills and help you live the life you want to live? And those are really difficult questions. And I don't think that I always know how to help students figure those things out. But I think if we could, then it would make, bridging that gap between graduation and getting a job a lot easier to bridge. And I don't know if the answer to that is different kinds of questions. Like do we need to start or different kinds of classes? Do we need to start designing courses on like story, like corporate storytelling or like, you know, narratives in the workplace or like, how do you create a brand for an organization that you're going to walk into so that students have really concrete examples of how their studies in communication could produce a positive impact in the organization they want to enter. And we've got some of those things. Sometimes I wonder if we could do with more, but I don't know, because those are also things that are outside of my wheelhouse. I never studied those in school, so I'm not sure that I would know how to teach it. Yeah. It makes me think about like incorporating more like business classes mm -hmm. and stuff just to make it more being like, Hey, I know you're exploring these things that like you're loving but like, let's also try to hone this in on yeah. thinking about like maybe an entrepreneurial ship of like yes. doing that, like corporate narrative and kind of stuff mm -hmm. and just like make it more palpable for the student. Yeah. Agreed. And maybe now that you say that, I think one of maybe, uh, I think that our major partners itself really nicely with so many different kinds of minors. So we get a lot of students who are like, I love my communication classes. I want to major in this. And it's like, cool, cool, cool. Let's then consider a minor in marketing or business administration, something that will help you kind of ground what you're learning with us in the context that you want to enter. And maybe that's a smarter push that I could start making yeah, because know. we're yeah. solving issues already. <laughs> well, yeah, that I, with um, communications department, yeah, like it already is kind of like set up that way. It's like, okay, you're getting this major, but... Your minor, what else? Right. yeah. What is your minor? Mm -hmm. That's where you. Because I remember like starting school and like uh, uh, Sakimoto like mm -hmm. was my advisor, and she was saying like, "But what's your minor?" Right. <laughs> what's the other thing you're gonna learn? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. I gotta say, yeah. It's like I can. I do agree. Um. And I'm glad that they're kind of changing the um the. Um, final classes, whatever, uh, senior seminar, whatever, to kind of incorporate from the sounds of it, could kind of starting to incorporate maybe helping you find that job thing. Yes, we're moving in a very good direction, I think. And that um, now, and if this will start in the fall, our capstone class is going to be a lot of like um, more tailored to job preparation. So, like, okay, now that you're getting ready to graduate, let's find job applications that you're interested in. Let's get your resume ready to go. Let's finish a portfolio that you could use to show off the work that you've done. So, I think these are some smart decisions, and I'm excited to see how they play out. 
Well, I think you've been really generous with your time. Yeah. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Look sure. at us go. Yeah. Is there anything you else you'd like to share or do you have any questions for us? Ooh, um, that's such a good question. And I tell my students to ask that every time they do research interviews. But now that I'm on the receiving end of it, <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea. Give me a second. What is it that you all are hoping to bring your listeners through this process? You want to start, Jacob? Um, we're just kind of like trying to do some, um, uh, bring something that hopefully people can enjoy and listen to and maybe relate to. Um, uh, I know I'm mainly doing it because I find it fun. Yeah, I think like um, hopefully through these conversations, we can find some insight for students and like answer questions. They didn't necessarily even know that they were mm. like questioning themselves. They're just kind of doing the homework, working through things. And then this can expand their mind a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Then knowing that, I think maybe what I would leave is a little nugget. And this is something that I wish I could say to every single student on campus, because I think it's gotten worse since COVID. Like, I, th I think that when we had to switch to all of those Zoom classes, that just it drove a wedge between students and faculty that I think we're still trying to rebuild. And I think especially for folks who are relatively newer to the university and have like, this is the first time the class I have with Jacob is the first in-person class that I've taught since 2020. And so I feel like I'm still kind of getting my bearings again. And like, what does it look like to be in the classroom? I think the same thing is true for a lot of our students. And what I have noticed, especially since COVID hit, is that students seem to be afraid to talk to their instructors about the issues that they're facing and how it's affecting their work in class. And so I get a lot of students, especially now that we're creeping closer towards the end of the semester, where they're behind on work. I haven't seen them in class for a while. And they finally start sending the emails and they're like, I'm so sorry. I've been dealing with so much and I've just been too afraid to talk to you about it. What can I do? And I'm like, oh, I wish we would have had this conversation weeks ago. Right. Because it's like the, the longer we delay the solution, the harder it is to get caught back up on things. And so what I try to tell folks at the very beginning of every single class, and I think sometimes it just doesn't sink in right away, is as soon as you're having trouble staying on track in the class, I want to know because I never want to be, and I, I guess I would hope that every instructor feels this way. I know that not all of them do, but I'm just going to pretend they do. Nobody enjoys failing a student in a class, right? Like I don't get any joy out of this. If I have to put in an F for your grade at the end of the semester, I feel bad about it because I'm like, where did we go wrong? And I think a lot of times the first, the first point where we kind of get off track is when we fall out of communication with each other. And so my advice, I guess, to anybody who's listening would be the moment you're starting to have difficulties, we want to know about it because I can... I, I, and I'll t I tell students this, if I know about it, I can help you. If I don't know, there's nothing that I can do because I don't know that there's a problem. All right. Well, thank you for that input. That was yeah. really insightful. Well, we're going on uh, 40 minutes here. So um, if no one else has anything else to say, I'll just say thank you for coming. Thank you to my awesome co-host for helping me out here. Are you um, happy to help? 
And all of you have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you. Bye.